Good morning, everyone. Good to see you here. Good to see you joining in and catching up on life. Excited to have another Sunday together as we get a chance to worship, as we get a chance to serve one another, as we get a chance to glorify God. As we get started, first thing, uh, some of the pods had continued through the summer. Others are kicking back off for the fall. I think all have kicked back off at this point, but if you are not currently in a pod of study and discipleship together, we would totally encourage you and even urge and exhort and request you to jump in. It's a really great way to be able to join in as a body of believers in separate little chunks in both the study of scripture and encouraging one another, praying through the joys and difficulties of life together and holding one another up as a result. It's something that we have seen a lot of fruit from in various individuals over the course of the past year or two, uh, as we've had many testimonies about. So please jump in a pod. Uh, I'm not just saying it's available. I'm asking you, please do it if you're not. We would love to have you involved in a pod. We'd love to have the input that the Holy Spirit will bring through you to the others who are there uh, and will bring to you from the others who are there. The list on the background table, there is a single page. Please don't grab it and steal it but there's a single page that lists off the pods and when they meet and where. Some of them say location varies, talk to the leader, but the others have specifics. Uh, All of them have the day and time where things are currently meeting. So if you're looking for, okay, I wanna join a pod, when are they so I even know, background table has the info for you. Secondly, please continue to be in prayer about uh, Connect Kids, our children's ministry, and how you might be able to plug in and help serve, uh, whether that's serving the children, whether that's serving the other adults here or both. Um, And then beyond that, just in prayer in general that God would bring people in to be able to serve, whether that fits with uh, the current responsibilities you have on Sunday or not, that God would fit people into that to meet the need there. Um, Because without people that are able to serve, we have no opportunity to reach the next generation intentionally in the same way that we otherwise might. So want to keep in prayer for that. Want to keep challenging ourselves to think uh, sacrificially and participationally, which is, yes, officially a word that I just made up. But how can we plug in? How can we pray toward that need? Uh, third, Move Up Sunday is coming September 10th because kids keep getting older. I know the adults don't, but the kids do. And so we are, we're all saying the same age as the adults, but the kids are getting older. And so some of them are moving up uh, from, yeah, Remy, you're getting older too, buddy. That's right. Um, Some of them are moving up from the children's ministry into uh, the main service here. And so we're going to be celebrating that in a couple Sundays. That also is the same Sunday, September 10th. That evening we'll be having another family meeting worship time together, uh, kind of reviewing any extra details related to the bylaw stuff and just rejoicing and singing together, uh, having a good time with that. We will have less brand new songs this time than we did last time. Um, and then the bylaw vote itself will be September 17th. So again, a reminder, on the background table, there are some stapled together pieces of paper that refer to Constitution and bylaw proposed changes. If you have not reviewed that, uh, especially if you're a member of the church, please take the time to do so. Um, Want to make sure that we have anything cleared up uh, and understood before we get to the 17th, when we'll officially vote on it. Uh, The basic summary of it is that in practice, basically nothing is changing. 
but the bylaws are being adjusted to reflect that much more better, uh, including having the correct name of our church and including having the correct address uh, in the Constitution and bylaws, uh, among other things. So anyway, with those things said, that wraps up the announcements and details for today. So let's turn to scripture. If you all want to stand, we will be reading from Psalm 75 today. And this is written to the choir master according to the tune of Do Not Destroy, which is a tune we don't know, but shows they were, they were sharing tunes even as they sought to proclaim God's goodness. A psalm from Asaph. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. Say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Horn is used here as a sign of someone's strength. Right? This is an Old Testament metaphor for your strength, for your power. Um, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with a haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. But I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. God, thank you that you are just, that you are overseeing the world and all that happens in it. Thank you that you are praiseworthy. Even as verse 9 says that we will praise your name, the God of Jacob. We pray, Spirit, that as we turn toward singing in particular right now, that you would give us the boldness to sing loud of your glory, of your fame, that you would give us the confidence not in ourselves and in our perfect singing voices or that sort of thing, but instead the confidence in you that you are worthy of all glory, you are worthy of all praise, that we would make it our ambition to praise you louder than we praise our sports teams to praise you louder than we praise our favorite games, to praise you louder than we praise our fashion, to praise you louder than we praise our political heroes, to praise you louder than anyone or anything else because you deserve it all. And I pray that that would be demonstrated in our Sunday gatherings, that it would be carried on throughout the week in our conversations. We pray that we even would praise you louder than our fears. Spirit, would you come even now, and give us, awaken in us the family affections of the family of God. We would praise you and love one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, Connection family. How's everybody doing today? It's good to be in the house of the Lord this morning, amen. And today is a, a special day, by the way. I just want to shout out real quick to my brother, Mark Jordan. Today is his birthday. And... Um, Lucky for him, I forgot to bring my sombrero today, so we won't, we won't sing to him right now, but maybe you guys can um, uh, sing him a nice happy birthday song later, okay? So we love you, Mark, and uh, happy birthday. Hope it's an awesome day. And um, thank you guys for being here to worship this morning. I'm excited to, uh, to continue in the book of Zechariah, and um, I'm excited about uh, reading through Ephesians as we've been doing our pods, and 
uh, just a lot of cool stuff in there that um, we've been unpacking together. And um, it's awesome to see uh, prophecy, in the, especially in the Old Testament, and especially the ones that um, we've seen resolved through Jesus Christ, right? Uh, it's so cool that this Bible, this Word of God that, that we have, is uh, self-authenticating in that way, that there's so many places in the Old Testament um, that could only have been fulfilled by Jesus, right? And um, because of that, we can have confidence that there's a lot of um, prophecies that we haven't seen fulfilled yet, and those are associated with his second coming, and we have so much to look forward to with that. And uh, this first song that we're going to sing is called Lion and the Lamb, uh, and it's really taken from uh, some of those prophecies about um, our God being um, the lion and the lamb. Um, he's the lamb that was slain, but he's the lion that is going to um, conquer and rule, and, and uh, we're going to have a great part in that. And uh, we look forward to his coming in the clouds. And uh, so let's sing about it together, and let's uh, worship our awesome God. He's coming on the clouds, kings and kingdoms will bow. Every chain will break. Broken hearts declare his praise. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Our God is a lion, the lion of Judah. He's roaring with power, fighting our battles. Every knee will bow before him. Our God is a lamb, the lamb that was slain. Sins of the world. His blood breaks the chain. Every knee will bow before the lion and the lamb. Every knee will bow before him. To open up the gates, wait for the King of Kings. The God comes to save. Tears set the captives free. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Our God is lion, the lion of Judah. He's roaring with power and fighting our battles. Every knee will bow before him. Our God is lamb, the lamb that was slain. The sins of the world, his blood breaks the chain. Every knee will bow before the lion and the lamb. Every knee will bow before him. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? 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 Who can stop the Lord? Who can stop the Lord? 
God is lying. The lion of Judah is roaring the power, fighting our battles. Every knee will bow before him. Our God is Lamb, the Lamb that was slain. Sins of the world, his blood breaks the chains. Every knee will bow before the lion and the lamb. Seven knee will bow before the lion and the lamb. Seven knee will bow before him. Speaking of prophecies. This next song is, uh, is called Revelation Song, and it's from a, a beautiful prophecy um, out of the book of Revelation in chapter 4. We haven't done this one in quite some time, but uh, it's a beautiful song from a really beautiful uh, scripture. And I just wanted to read through Revelation 4 with you for a minute, okay? And there's some things in here, as in um, a lot of these prophecies, that boggle the mind, uh, but the, the parts that really shine clear I just comfort my heart in knowing that we have such an awesome time with God to look forward to before his throne. In chapter 4 it says, After this I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. Those are beautiful gems, precious stones. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Can you get that picture in your mind? It's unfathomable, the beauty and the, and the glory in his throne room. But it gets even better. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And by your will, they exist and were created. Holy is our God, glorious beyond our imagination. He is worthy of our praise, so let's sing it to him this morning.
with the living creatures around the throne we're going to sing it forever sing holy 
Holy, holy, holy is our Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. With all creation I have seen, praise to the King of Kings. You are my everything, and I will adore you. God, you are so holy. Our minds cannot fathom your greatness. You are so great and so good to have bridged such a great chasm. When we were once your enemies, without hope, without righteousness of our own, our righteousness was as filthy rags but you sent your precious son to drink the foaming cup of your wrath to the dregs to spare us so that we could be called the children of God, that we could be a part of the living creatures of the hosts of heaven crying out for all eternity that holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You are so worthy of all of our praise. We cast all of our crowns at your feet. We thank you for your incredible display of love and sacrifice. Pray that your name would be high and lifted up in this room and around the world today. And that many would understand that the name of Jesus is the only name by which we must be saved. Let today be the day of salvation. We ask it in your precious name. Amen. Well, if you want to be seated briefly, we're going to transition to prayer time. And so we continue in that same thought of, of the glory of God. In Isaiah 6, starting in verse 1, he says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. This is a massive vision of the Lord seated on a throne. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And as if that wasn't already enough, the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And we, we read that in Revelation, we read that in Isaiah, and I fear so often our response is not what we're about to read in verse 5. I know mine often is not. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I just want to rest there for a second before we read the next verse. Because we, we sing and we talk sometimes about the glory of God. And we, we have the old song from many years ago, Open the eyes of my heart, Lord, I want to see you, that we sing with happy joy. But, but if we see the Lord for real, with a train of the robe filling the temple and the foundations shaking at the sounds of the voice that proclaim his holiness, 
we would and should be in fear because our sin would be ever before us. And so only this next verse is a means of rescue. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. Only because of what Jesus has done can we even stand in God's presence with any sort of confidence. So our our prayer today relates to both of those two things, that as we are singing and hearing and reading and hearing from David in a minute of the glories of God, that our hearts would just be so caught up with that, that joy, that reality of his holiness, but that we would see him every bit as real in his greatness and glory, and that it might even freak us out a little bit to realize this truly is the God of all the universe, and that that freak out would bring an awareness of our sin that we don't always have. I know sometimes when it's like, hey, how can, we, how can someone ask me, how can I pray for you? What are you struggling with? And I'm like, um, man, I, I wish I knew right now to tell you. Not that I have nothing I'm struggling with, but that I lack the mental awareness of my sin so that, that God would give us the awareness of our sin and through, through the visions of his glory and the greatness of his name and his power and through seeing ourselves rightly, that we would see our sin and we would be undone by it and, and very sorrowful for it, that we would see our pride, that we would see our selfishness, that we would see the sin that we still struggle with, but then that we would see also his greatness and his great mercy so that we would both pray for God's enlightenment of our eyes to see our sin and also our enlightenment to see what he has done for us and his glory made new. So kind of those two hinges or those two sides on the same hinge, I guess, like his greatness, our weakness in sin, the combination of those two things that we would see them and that it would empower our worship. So that's what we wanted to pray toward today as we have our congregational prayer time, that that would be defining the life of our church that we would be a church that is very aware of our sin and very aware of his mercy. That we would be very willing and able to speak vulnerably about what we're going through because we know Jesus has paid it all and he is great. And that our, even as we are aware of our sin, we are far more aware of his greatness. And so we don't have to be bogged down with shame. We can be honest about where we're struggling, knowing that all of our worship goes to God for all that he has done and all that he has brought about. So let's break up into our groups and pray uh, as we normally do. And then I'll be back up here in a few minutes to close us out as we transition toward the sermon.
God, thank you that you have paved the way to redeem us from all of our brokenness, from all of sin. Thank you, Spirit, that you have come to encourage and to build up and to convict. So we pray that you would do both of those, that you would convict us of the sin that we have so that we can see it and so that we can get rid of it. You are not like the accuser. You are not Satan who is seeking to show us our sins so we'd feel ashamed. You are instead the faithful shepherd who helps us to grow. You are instead like a faithful doctor who shows us where the cancer is so we can get rid of it. We do not want to remain ignorant of our cancer. So we pray, Spirit, that you would show us our own hearts, that you would keep us aware of our sin so that we can fight it. You keep us aware of our sins so we can tell others for the, for the prayer and encouragement and assistance that we need. And that you would keep us even more aware of your great mercy and your great glory. That we would worship you in your awesome power. That even when like, I know I, I struggle with impatience at times, with, especially with my children. And that can be something that is, that is true and also not a source of condemnation but instead something that you can give strength to me to fight and to correct. And we pray that those sorts of things would ring true for all of us, that we would stare our sin in the face and seek the help from you to get rid of it. That as we do that, we would become ever better mirrors of your glory, ever better worshipers of your greatness, that the world around us would see and stand in awe not that we're so amazing, but that you are. That the world would even be shocked that people who are so aware of their own inadequacy could be so bold as to worship the great God of the universe. But that is exactly the privilege you've given us. So I pray that you would help us to rejoice in that privilege and to make good on it. That we would experience the joy of your salvation day after day after day. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would stand with me, we can read God's word together. If you have a hard copy, we're going to be flipping pages this morning. The first and eighth visions of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 1, 7 through 17. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red sorrel, were red sorrel and white horses. Then I said, What are these, my lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Also chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. Thank you. Chapter 6, 1 through 8. My fault. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes towards the north country. The white ones go after them and the dappled ones go toward the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, Go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, Behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you, Megan. So the Bible is written in several different genres. So for example, there's narrative, there's poetry, there's wisdom, there's parables, there's epistles, there's prophecy, and then there's the weird one. You guys know what I'm talking about? The weird one? Apocalyptic literature. Portions of Daniel, the majority of Revelation, thank you, Justin, and the first six-ish chapters of Zechariah. So this morning, we're back in our series in Zechariah. We're calling it Rebuilt Hearts, Restored Hopes. And as we look at these initial visions, I want to give you some tips up front for reading and interpreting apocalyptic literature. So when you hear the word apocalyptic, what comes to mind? Maybe two things, an end of the world type scenario, something like that, and second, maybe strange images and visions that you don't understand, right? But there are two important things you need to realize as you approach apocalyptic literature. First, Apocalyptic literature is not always referring to final, last battle, end of the world type scenarios. Many times we find apocalyptic literature referring to events that will happen in the immediate or near future from the people who the book was written to, okay? Or other times apocalyptic literature and the events will refer to far future uh, situations, that is, far from the original audience situations, far like the first coming of Jesus type situations. And then sometimes apocalyptic literature will be referring to the final future, that is the second coming of Jesus Christ or right before the second coming of Jesus Christ. So this means that when we 
Uh, when God gives apocalyptic visions, like the ones we find in Zechariah, sometimes they go together chronologically. That means in order. And other times, the vision that seemed to happen seconds after another vision is really going to actually happen thousands of years later. Have I confused you yet? Great. Good luck reading your Bible. No, I'm just kidding. All right. So here's the takeaway. Uh, in apocalyptic literature, God is not very interested about giving us a detailed timeline, neatly contained in a complicated end times chart that you have to have two masters and a doctorate to understand. And all God's people said, thank you. <laughs> but what he wants to mainly do in apocalyptic literature, whether the events that he's talking about are near or far or final, is to teach us specific truths that will impact our souls now. Now. So if you have a version of reading Revelation or Zechariah for that matter, and what you your version includes these concepts that don't change you in the now, then I want you to toss that way of viewing apocalyptic literature out, okay? Second point about apocalyptic literature. Yes, apocalyptic lit literature is full of strange visions and pictures. Like I said a couple of weeks ago, like the type that you may have, the dreams that you may have if you eat chocolate or cheese before you go to bed, okay? This is true. But here's the thing, it's important to know that God doesn't always, and I will even say want, you to understand all the individual details of a specific vision. He actually often leaves them out on purpose. And I could prove that through Daniel chapter 12, verse 4. It's apocalyptic literature in that section as well. After, the, after Gabriel unpacked a large vision to Daniel, Daniel says, well, what about this specific detail in the vision, Gabriel? What about it? What does it mean? And Gabriel, the angel, responds like this, roughly, David's paraphrase. Um, don't worry about it, <laughs> roughly. He doesn't say, how about you guess that detail, Daniel, and then you write a popular bestseller about it. He doesn't. He says, you still up that vision, Daniel, and you go your own way. Basically, this detail is not for you or for them now. When God wants us to understand a specific detail or symbol in apocalyptic literature, he will give it, and often through an angelic interpreter, like the one that's going to guide Zechariah through his eight visions. And that concept is encouraging for us because it points us back to the Latin and the Greek understanding of the word apocalypse. Apocalyptic literature really means revealing or uncovering the meaning of something that was once covered or unclear or kept from us. Aren't you glad that God reveals this morning? He doesn't just give us his word, but he explains his word. He doesn't just explain his word, but he gives us his spirit to interpret his word for us into our hearts. So here's what I'm saying. Don't try to force events or people where there is no explanation in the text. Unfortunately, we do this a lot with apocalyptic literature. For example, there's a monster being described in the book of Revelation, and we are like, it's got to be an Apache helicopter, you know? Or a beast is rising up from the sea. It's definitely China, right? Well, unfortunately, in those moments, often what ends up happening is that we begin to focus on what God didn't want us to focus on in apocalyptic literature. We make our guests detailed about a specific point, the whole focus, instead of what God revealed clearly in the scripture. So with that said, my advice as we begin to move through the apocalyptic visions, these eight, the next several weeks is 
Don't get lost in the details. Instead, get the big picture of what God is saying through the visions. So today we're looking at Zechariah as we cover his first and final vision. You say first and final? So the first vision and the eighth one in the series? Yes. You say, why are we going to do that? That seems out of order. Well, because as I mentioned in our opening sermon in Zechariah, I told you that the vision section is set up in a chiastic structure. Again, a chiasm is a literary device where the sequence of ideas is presented and then repeated in reverse order. It'd be kind of like leaving here to go to Florida, and on the way you're like, hey, we passed that sign, and then we passed that gas station, and then you get to Florida, and you're like, we're here in Florida, and then you turn around and you come back, and you come back, and you're like, there's the same gas station, and here's that sign, and then you're back to the beginning. So that means vision one and vision eight intentionally pair. That means they have the same themes in them. You, sh- you should have seen that as Megan read. That also means visions two and seven pair, vision three and six pair, and vision four and five pair, and then you're in the middle of the chiasm. Have I lost anybody yet? And here's the thing. The middle of the chiasm, the two middle visions, they're actually the most important part of the chiasm from which everything flows into and everything else flows out of. And you know what's in the middle of Zachariah's chiasm? Does anybody know? Jesus, our priest king, who forgives us by his sacrifice and then empowers us by his spirit to do the work of the ministry. So my goal is to describe vision one and eight this morning and show you how they connect thematically how they point to Jesus, and then how hopefully you can apply them to your life. That sound good? All right, we ready? All right, so vision one, one, seven through 17, is the horseman among the myrtle trees, the horseman among the myrtle trees. And it may look something like this, huh, like this, huh. All right, so those are myrtle trees at the horse's feet. In reality, to be true to the vision, they should be huge and the foliage and the leaves should be really thick so you can barely see the horses. But whoever artistically designed this didn't do it really how it was described in the vision, okay? So that's one, seven through 17, vision one, horsemen among the myrtle trees. Second, vision eight, that is chapter six, one through eight, the four chariots and two bronze mountains. And it might look a little something like this. You see the bronze mountains on the side? All right, and there's four chariots there. Okay, so just toggle back and forth for a second, Jacob. Uh, All right, good, thank you. So you're doing great, man. Keep it up. All right, so you can tell just by looking at the images some of the things that they have in common. You guys yell it out to me. What do they have in common? Horses, okay. What, nature, yep. So the main thing, horses, right? Angelic beings, Nature, okay, that's what we see. So there's multicolored horses in this. You can't tell from this image, but they're patrolling the earth. They have that similarity involved. They also, in the text, not seen in the picture, both of these sections mention this concept of peace or rest. That's what unites them together. So let's find out how these visions are connected and then try to apply these truths to our lives. So Zechariah chapter one, verse seven. Let's get in vision one together. So open your book and let's look specifically at vision one, okay? God gives Zechariah a series of eight wild visions and what appears to be a very long night. 
The time stamp at the beginning of this text shows us that Zechariah has the visions on the 24th day of the 11th month of Shabbat and the second year of Darius, which is roughly February 519 BC. And you say, what does that matter? Okay, first, it's about 17 years after Israel returned from Babylonian exile. Ding, 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 get that in your mind. And it's about three months after the sermon I preached last week. You say, I missed it, and I'm three months away? Yeah, okay, so this vision happened about three months after Zechariah went to the people who were not rebuilding the temple, and he said, what are y'all doing? We need to repent and turn to the Lord. And then the vision happens. So we find out in chapter 1, 16, our text this morning, the new generation actually did repent after Zechariah preached to them and told them to return to the Lord. They responded to Zechariah's preaching, returned to God, and as a result, they were ready and energetic to return to the work of God building the temple. And this is what I want you to remember each week as we look at the vision sections. Three things each week. They're not going to be on the screen. Visions flow from repentance. That's what you see. So the people are like, God, I'm sick and tired of living for myself and doing what I want to do. I'm brokenhearted about that. I see your love on display and I repent. And this is what God says. Now I'm going to show you something. That's kind of how it actually happens in the Christian life. Visions don't just flow out of repentance or from repentance. Visions are fulfilled in Jesus. So these visions are building, 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 climactically, hitting the center of the chiasm. Jesus is on display. And we're like, that's the point of the whole Bible. That's the point of my life. And if I don't get this, I won't understand mission. I won't. Finally, the thing you need to realize every week we look at the visions is visions fuel mission. First vision falls on the hills of their return to God. And once they return to God, they're like, hey, what can I do? That's exactly what happens in Isaiah's prophecy. God shows them their sin. They repent and see Jesus and their need for the, the, the work of the cross ultimately. And then Isaiah says, what does he say? Anybody know? Here I am, Lord, send me. And that's what the Israelites actually say in that context. They say, here we are, Lord, let's build this temple. And so we say, here we are, Lord, let's build your kingdom. It's not about me. Zechariah 1.8, Zechariah sees a man riding on a red horse, standing in a grove of myrtle trees. And behind him, there are three different colored horses. Show that image again, first vision. First point, understand the artificial peace of God's enemies. Understand the artificial peace of God's enemies. See, Zechariah doesn't know what the vision means, so he asks his angelic guide. The answer comes as his guide speaks to another angel with the horse in, 11, in verse 11. God has sent them out to patrol the entire earth. So the idea behind the imagery is that the Lord has an angelic special ops team. You like that? running reconnaissance behind enemy lines at all times. That's happening right now, not just in Zechariah's day. And they are concealed in the shadows, as it were, behind the lush evergreen leaves, but they are always watching and gathering intel. So you better believe the Lord of angel armies always knows what's going on everywhere. 
And for God's people, that provides encouragement and hope. And for God's enemies, they should look and they should be fearful. And what is this intel they have gathered? End of verse 11, they say this, Lord of hosts, all the earth remains at rest. Some translations in the English read it like this. The whole earth is, earth is peaceful and quiet. All peaceful on the Western front. Is that what it is? Now that may sound like a good thing, but in this text, it is not. It's not good for the people of God. The idea here is that at this point in time, the region of the world had been in great turmoil the Assyrians had the power. Oh, and then it switched over to the Babylonians having the power. Oh, and then it switched over to Persia and Darius having the power. And that was not by coincidence. A sovereign king was leading that and guiding the affairs of the earth and the kings of the earth. But guess who was not in power? Little Israel. They're not. They're despairing in the midst of all this. And chapter 1, verse 15 of Zechariah tells us that the enemies of God are, look at it, 115, they're at ease or they're untroubled. That is, they are living fat and happy in unrepentant lives before God. While his people just repented to Zechariah's preaching and they're still under the boot of their enemies. The people of God were repenting and they were still living under the boot of his, their enemies. Yeah. Thank you, Siri. Reminds me of Psalm 73, one of my favorite psalms of all times. The psalmist is upset and he's jealous. And he's like, woe is me. I live a holy life before God and I'm so depressed. Why is he depressed? I feel like that too. I'm not making fun of him. He says this, basically, because the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. He makes this extreme statement in Psalm 73 at the beginning Verse 12, he says this, extreme statement, because it is not always true. He says, behold the wicked, they are always at ease. Same Hebrew word we have here. Maybe you feel like that sometime. Maybe your non-Christian classmates seem so popular and like they have everything going on and they cheat in school or they say things that don't honor the Lord and all the while you're living faithful and serving the Lord and, and you don't seem to be popular like they are. Or maybe a faithful saint batters cancer. You've heard this story a thousand times. And they spend their remaining days away from their family in the hospital while an unbeliever who doesn't honor the Lord in his business practices rises up to CEO and lives his life with his grandkids or vacationing in Cancun and dies a peaceful, happy death. Or like my pastor friend in Vermont, Eric, People just broke into their church two weeks ago and stole all kinds of musical instruments from their church. They did illegal drugs on the, the steps of the pulpit and left the remaining of those drugs right in front of the pulpit. And then they went back to the offices where they had their elder room and they drew all over the whiteboard a pentagram and left the message that they intended to be intimidating to drive the church out of that community. This is two weeks ago. This is happening in the U.S., but God is wanting to tell us through all these visions that the enemies of God have artificial peace. It's like that time when I went to the table at my friend's house and I was like really hungry and I reached out to grab me a banana in the middle of the basket and I grabbed it and it was too late and I realized it was fate. It was wax. 
And the reason why I say the people, the enemies of God have an artificial peace is because it's not deep enough and it's not long enough. It's not deep enough because it doesn't go to the soul and it doesn't meet you where you are and give you right relationship with God. It's not, it's not deep enough and it's not long enough because it doesn't last forever. It doesn't last forever. Second point, live in the peace of his unchanging love. Live in the peace of God's unchanging love for you. See, we see that here in the text. First, because of God's intercession for his people. Second, we'll see it because of God's announcement to his people. So first, we see his unchanging love that brings peace because of his intercession for his people. In the midst of that discouraging scene of God's enemies being on top, a new angel speaks up in the vision in verse 11 through 12. It is the angel of the... Let's participate. It's the angel of the, yep, you can pull that verse off. Now, when you see the phrase angel of the Lord, what you can typically, typically think of, and I want you to typically think of when you read the Old Testament, I want you to typically think of Jesus. A pre-incarnate representation of the, the divine son, the second person of the Trinity. And other times people argue that the angel of the Lord refers to God the Father, but in this particular chapter, in this particular vision, it can't be re- referring to God the Father. Otherwise, the Father would be talking to himself. So I really do think it's a pre-incarnate Jesus. So look what the angel of the Lord says and does for a broken down people. They're like, I'm tired. And my sins have made me tired. And the enemies of God, we're, we're just beat up. And look what the angel of the Lord does. And the heartbreaking difficulty, he intercedes for them. He calls out to the Father, the Lord of hosts, for them. Are you struggling in your sin, but you're seeking repentance and turning to the Savior? Are you tired of being beat up by the people in your life? You're like, I got politics issues, the government issues. I've got politics in the office place issues. I got politics with my kids' sports issues. I got enemies on every side, it feels. And on top of that, the demons of hell are after me. Satan wants to devour me. And Jesus says to his people through this vision, a foreshadowing really, I ever live to intercede for you. I've died for you. My wounds plead, the blood pleads on your behalf, a better word for you. I'm there for you. I'm not going to abandon you. I am for you. The blood speaks for you. And I'm alive now forevermore to intercede for my people. And the angel of the Lord knows that the people in this context have been in exile for 70 years under foreign rule. So the angel of the Lord says this, how long, O Lord? Does does Jesus seem indifferent about your suffering in that text? No, he's with you in the suffering in that text. He cries out and says, how long, Father? Are they gonna have to deal with this? Do you see the compassion of God? He wants the people of God to live close and free. And the father wants them to do the same thing. You see it in the Lord of hosts response to the angel of the Lord. He doesn't respond with words of indifference. Like, you know, they're getting what they deserve those 70 years in exile. The Lord of hosts doesn't respond to the angel of the Lord like that. It says, actually, 
They speak gracious and comforting words together. Isn't that good to know? With all the sin this week and today, that the Trinity is speaking gracious and comforting words about you because of what Christ has done for you. Isn't that encouraging to know? That's amazing to know who God is and to know that. It's ultimately coming through this foreshadowing, I believe, to show us that all those gracious and encouraging truths for us come ultimately because of the mediation of the Son, what he did on the cross. See, the unchanging, loving intercession came only through the cross, and it comes for us daily. Second, we don't only see God's unchanging love for his people in that gracious intercession and interchange that we see between the angel of the Lord and the Lord of hosts, we also see it in this gracious announcement. Well, what's the announcement? It has two parts here. First part, God is exceedingly jealous for his people. God is exceedingly jealous for his people. That's what James says in the book of James. He says, God yearns for the spirit that he's made to dwell within us. And there's a greater grace given to his people. That's what James says. And here the same thing is happening. It's easy to think because our lives don't turn out the way we want them to. And because the struggle that we're going through or the enemies around us seem to be on top, that God doesn't love us. And that's the same struggle that Israel was having right there in their context. But even the disciplining hand of God speaks of his love for his people. Even that. Because in that he's saying, I'm jealous for them. I'm not going to let them go. What kind of husband would you be if your wife started running around with other men and you're like, I don't care, whatever. She can be with them. No, God's like, they have idols. They love other things before me and I am jealously pursuing their hearts and I'm going to set them free through my work and through my resurrection again and again and I'm going to pursue them again and again and again. That's unchanging love, right? That's the love that Hosea had for Gomer, and that's the love that Jesus has for his people. Here's the other part of that. That pursuing jealous love leads people that are sinful and messed up like us to do God's work when we, he should say, nah, they messed up too many times. Let's let somebody else <laughs> fill in for them. No more second chances. They botched it again this week. No more. And in this text, look what happens in verse 16. God says, I have returned to Jerusalem, implied, because they have returned to me. And then he says, my house shall be built in it, in Jerusalem. He's ultimately saying to an undeserving yet repentant people, I'm going to use them. And that's what he's saying to you today. His unchanging love, his jealous heart for you and for his glory. He's saying, I'm not going to give up on them. I'm going to use them to build my kingdom. And that's the message to God's people today. He's not going to rest until our hearts love him like they should. He's not going to rest in his jealousy until our hearts are affectionate for him and we're pursuing his mission in that same way. Second part of the announcement is this. Not only is God exceedingly jealous for his people, and he'll show that jealously ultimately in doing whatever it takes to win their hearts and resurrect their hearts through the cross and through the resurrection, but he also shows in this text, he's exceedingly angry with his people's enemies. And that's good to know because usually 
we wrestle with that. We're like, we're going through difficulty. We're having a hard day. People at work are living however they want to. The good life, that church got broken into and all their stuff got stolen. And we say stuff like this. Does God even care? Is he even noticing? Is he even gonna do something? I thought he was sovereign. And we begin to doubt him. And this text is saying, God cares. And he's angrier, more righteously angry than anybody. Because when God's enemies sin, they sin against him first and foremost, and then they sin against his bride. And he's not gonna let his bride get bullied for long. He's exceedingly angry. And he says this, even though ultimately in verse 15, I sovereignly sent Babylon to discipline my people, I'm very unhappy with Babylon because they furthered the disaster. And you're like, what does that mean? He's meaning they've overstepped their limits because they took what they were supposed to do and they overstepped the line and said, we're just gonna brutally tear up the place and destroy them. We don't care. And they use that opportunity of brutality to rely arrogantly on themselves. And God is saying in this moment, the tables are gonna turn soon. My righteous anger is coming after my enemies and my people's enemies. And he's saying to us, ultimately, it's not just political enemies. You're like, man, one day we're gonna get the presidential candidate we want. No, he's saying, ultimately, what I'm talking to is an eternity where not just certain po political enemies and foreign enemies are put under the, the feet of God's people, but demons, Satan, sin and shame, ultimately he's pointing to the future, the coming of Jesus. And this is exactly what Psalm 73 did. It said, all the people of God are at ease. And then the psalmist says, until I entered into the sanctuary and I realized something. And you know what the psalmist revealed, got revealed to him in Psalm 73? He said, God showed me that the enemies, my enemies, they've been placed in slippery places and their judgment's coming soon. He didn't stop there. He said, God also showed me that even in the midst of my beast-like behavior before him and my struggle with sin, nevertheless, God is continually with me. He holds my right hand. He counsels me with his word. And afterwards, he's gonna receive me into glory. So God's people get this announcement of being received into glory and God announces to his enemies, you've been set in slippery places. It's only a matter of time. See, God's unrepentant enemies have physical peace maybe in this life, but they have zero peace with God. God's repentant people don't always have physical peace, but they do always have peace with God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And as the first vision ends, the Lord of hosts turns to Zechariah and says, announce that good news. I wanna invite you guys into this too. He turns and says, that's too good to be true. And he says, announce that good news. Announce that gracious and comforting news for God's people. Tell God's chosen people about his unchanging love for them in the midst of their trials and even the discipline that God brings on their lives. Tell God's people that he's gonna use them in their repentance, not in their perfection. <laughs> Tell God's people what their enemies are doing to them God looks at with righteous anger and he's gonna bring about his justice in his time and he's gonna make all things new. Now for vision eight. 
Show that image one more time, Jacob. All right. And third point, hope in his complete and coming peace. Hope in his complete and coming peace. So there's a contrast here. A lot of things in common with verse vision one and vision eight, but there's also a contrast. Instead of individual horses in vision eight, we have what? You tell me, what do we have? Chariots. So instead of this own stealth or stealthy reconnaissance data gathering mission that we had in verse one, concealed by the trees hiding with camo, instead of that, we've got now multiple horses going out through the earth pulling chariots, which is the ancient equivalent for tanks. Okay, that's what we got. And you get the bronze mountains in the background. It's God's way of saying everyone's going to see this. Because you know what happens when the sun hits bronze mountains? Bing! Shoom! Rays of sunshine everywhere. Bronze mountains can't help reflect the sun. This event, this coming is going to be impossible to miss. What's he pointing to? Jesus returning. We've gone from covert operations in the trees to tanks rolling over fences in enemy territory as an eternal sunrise begins to crack the sky. God's heavenly army is finally on the move. His righteous anger is about to be unleashed. Zechariah 6, 4 through 5, Zechariah asks his angelic guide about the strong horse tanks and the blinding light coming out of the mountains, the bronze mountains. And the angel tells them, hey, they're heading to the four winds of heaven, which is an Old Testament way of saying they're heading to every corner of the globe. That is, God is sending out his invincible army into every square inch of the universe that he created and owns, and he's gonna decimate the enemy. He's gonna rescue his people who don't deserve it, and he's gonna take back his world once and for all. No place is beyond his reach. That's why we hope in that coming day. Verse six through seven, the multicolored horse tanks go into different directions. The black and white horses went to the north country while the spotted went to the south country. Apparently, God's angelic army is so large, he can keep the red horse tanks in reserve because he's got so many to fight his battle. But if they are going to the four winds. How come nobody went east? And how come nobody went west? Well, it was probably because God was making this vision really personal for his people and basing it on their current geography. Aren't you glad God makes things personal for people? You're like, God does something in your life while you're reading your Bible or you're driving to work. And you're like, that would have only made sense to me. <laughs> and because God did that, it's meaningful to me. And I think that's what he's doing for his people here in the book. To the west of Judah was the Mediterranean Sea, and to the east was the desert. But to the north and south, enemies always came down on those main highways or came up from those main highways. So as one author said, Judah's main enemies always came from the north. That's Babylon, Assyria, and Persia. And Judah's other enemy, Egypt, always came from the south to attack them. And now in verse 7 through 8, the horse tanks are heading out to impose the Lord's sovereign universal rule on the whole world. God's angelic armies are eager or impatient to carry out the task. And almost as soon as the angelic army is sent 
to do this, they have to send back a message to headquarters. And you know what the message is? They send them out to bring God's justice. And immediately they come back with the message to headquarters, to the Lord of hosts. And you know what they say? Victory is ours. It was like nothing. <laughs> and when Jesus comes back, it's going to be like nothing. And it's going to be over or really just beginning. As one author put it, God's spirit had accomplished rest, or that word in the Hebrew can be peace. Rest on the land of the north. That's where the former enemies of God were coming from. And rest and peace implies here full and final defeat on those who had opposed God and his people. See, God had triumphed. The war was over and his people are finally free. And it's interesting to remember how Vision 8 started out. You say, well, how did Vision 8 start out? Zechariah 6, 1, look how it started out. What is Zechariah doing? He lifts up his what? Eyes. That maybe we're previously looking down, thinking, man, things stink for the people of God, right? Man, my life is really hard. He was looking down and then he looks up out of that discouraging situation. And as he takes his gaze upward, we could say heavenward, we see him looking to the greatest reality, the truer reality of God's coming kingdom. See guys, we're fighting a battle he's already won. That's what the song says that I love. Like currently, Jesus is leading us in procession over our enemies. You're like, Satan's still like alive and well, right? Yeah. But the word of God says they've been disarmed at the cross. He took away their, in, uh, their ability ultimately to shame us and, and destroy us. He took it away through the cross and the resurrection. So we're fighting a battle that we've already won. And it's like Zechariah is looking at a gross, depressing, black, four-inch spot on the wall. He's like really close to it, you know? You know, you know when you go to those art studios or whatever in like New York and you pay a lot of, a lot of money to look at art? It's like somebody's leaning over and they're looking at that, that picture and they, the guy's like, hey, hey, back up, back up. You're like, back up? Yeah, back up. Take some steps back. And you're like, oh, wow. That's actually not a black depressing spot. That's Jesus coming back on a white horse and the sunlight coming up from an eternal sunrise and he's decimating his enemies and we're with him. And I was just, not lifting my eyes. I was too close. And this world had me deceived about what was on the canvas. But now I see the full picture. That's what Zechariah and these visions are calling us to. My question, are you seeing the full picture? A couple of application, and then we're going to transition to the Lord's Supper. Non-Christians in the room. You may think you're secure and the opposition that you bring to God's people or the mistreatment that you bring to God's people. Or you may be secure in what you perceive to be your artificial peace. But God sees everything and he's going to act. And lost people's state of ease is artificial and temporary. So if you're a non-Christian here, I'm telling you, repent and believe the gospel. Escape from final judgment through the mercy of Christ. And if you have lost people, friends, and family, make it even more urgent to call them to Christ for salvation. So if that's you, I want you to believe today in the gospel. Second, Christian. 
Are you beat down, discouraged, tired, stalled out? I want you to know that God sees your struggling. He sees your battle daily with repentance even to follow him. And I want you to know he loves you. Just as true today as it was when you first came to be a a Christian. And that'll be just as true until the day you die. Do you believe that this morning? He has a loving intercession that is made possible through his death for you. And he has a glorious announcement over you. He's saying, you'll never escape my love. That's a good thing. I jealously pursue you in your heart all the days of your life. And I want you to look up and see the rest of the picture. Look at the total canvas. I'm coming back for you. And I'm going to make all things right. Will you tell your fellow saints that are struggling to believe God loves them in the midst of their struggle? Will you tell them that God loves them? And will you remind me and them of how the story ends? I think my pastor friend, Eric in Vermont, reminded me unintentionally of how the story ends when he told me the rest of the story about his church being vandalized. He says he followed around from room to room, made it to where the elders meet. They have chairs lined along a table in a room. They went back. They didn't know at first. They grabbed the whiteboard. They flipped it over just trying to get everything back in order in the room that had been moved flipped it over, and there was that pentagram at the top, and there was this message coming across the bottom of the whiteboard. Yeah, like I said, intending to scare and intimidate them. It said this, Satan is watching, S-A-T-I-N. And one of the elders of the church said, well, at least it wasn't velour. Satan's days are numbered. Satan's days are numbered. This is what Zachariah's vision is telling us, right? That his days are numbered. Like he's a defeated foe thrashing around on the ground. And he's bringing havoc into our lives. But he's a joke, ultimately, because Jesus has defeated him. Third and finally, are you going to let God's undeserved love and knowledge of his coming victory inspire you to the work of the ministry? Are you going to let it do that? Are you going to let this vision that's so huge bring you out of apathy and coldness towards him and also inactivity to the mission that he's called you to? Are you going to let that vision drive you into a deeper love and fellowship with Jesus, our our creator and our savior? And are you going to let it drive you to the work of the ministry? We're not called to build a physical temple, but we are called to take the gospel to all nations. And in that, when people get saved and come to faith, we're called to be a part of building them up into the household of God where his spirit lives. And sometimes that building up looks like loving, and sometimes it looks like serving, and sometimes it looks like repenting together and forgiving together and sharing together and singing together and reading the scriptures together and sharpening each other together and gathering together and giving together and one anothering together. Are you going to come and join us in the work that God is doing? here. In the end of John 20, 18 through 23, I love it. It seems very similar in John 20 to where it is in the beginning of Zechariah. Very similar. And here's the similarity. In the beginning of Zechariah, the people are like, we've been waiting around for 17 years, not doing what God's called us to do, build this temple. And God comes in power 
preaches repentance to them, shows them this vision and says, come on, let's go to the work. And what we have in the New Testament, John 20, Jesus has just been crucified for the sins of the world and the disciples are hiding in the upper room. They're hiding, they're scared, they're fearful, the text says. They're ashamed, they're cowering, they're not doing the mission. Jesus had said, go make disciples, build my church, shepherd my people. And then Jesus steps in, as it were, through the door in the upper room. He's like, I resurrected. And the first thing he does is not reprimand them. He says, my peace I give to you. And he says, as the father sent me, so now I am sending you. And then he breathes on them and, and gives them his Holy Spirit. And he says, get to it, get to it. Let's get to it together. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to study this morning and realize your never changing love for your people through these visions. And I pray, Lord, this morning that we would see the full scope of the canvas. Lord, we'd understand that you love us in the midst of our struggle, in the midst of our our failures, in the midst of even discipline in our lives at times, in the midst of our doubting, in the midst of our rejection, in the midst of not understanding, you love us with a steadfast, always never giving up love. And Lord, you're coming again for us. You're gonna make all things right. You're gonna renew this world and all of its brokenness. You're even going to give us new bodies, Lord, to celebrate in your presence forever. And we thank you for that. And we love you. And we pray that you would send us out with this vision to a greater desire to work and serve and to build your kingdom. We pray it in Christ's name, amen. As we transition to the Lord's Supper, I'm gonna invite uh, Justin and Amber up to play a song in just a minute. And very simply, as we turn to the table, I wanna bring us back to Psalm 75, as it was already mentioned this morning. It says in that text that the enemies of God are gonna get this foaming cup of judgment poured out on them. That's what it says in Psalm 75. We read it at the beginning of the service. And here's the thing that I want you to remember as you come to this table, we would all get that foaming cup of judgment apart from Jesus. And this is what the Bible says, pointing to Gethsemane and other texts, that Jesus drank the cup that you deserved of God's judgment. And he drank, drank it in full or to the dregs, like Psalm 75 says, so that you could experience his love now and you'll experience it for all of eternity in his presence. That's the message of the gospel. Christ died for your sins. He raised again to bring you into relationship. And this is the thing, even if you don't have peace on the outside, you can have peace with God because Jesus is our peace. And that's what we read in Ephesians 2 this week. But it doesn't stop there. As we gather as a family, we're saying we're all broken. We all stand in need of Jesus and his sacrifice and his blood. And we understand that Jesus didn't only give us vertical peace with God, he gave us horizontal peace with the people of God. All right? So are we functioning in that horizontal peace with the people of God? Because Jesus has purchased it for us. That means that we can forgive one another. We can say, I, I forgive you, brother, for sinning against me. Or can you forgive me? We can say that in great humility. And as we gather, we say we're imperfect, but God is perfect. And he's laid down his perfect life for us. And we can say this meal doesn't save us, but it points us to the one who did. And it's a tangible reminder every time we pick up the bread and the juice to say, 
that we're desperately in need of God's grace through Christ. And he's begun a good work in us and he's gonna perfect us and perfect that work. And just like it says in the opening of Corinthians, I believe that that mill through the new covenant of his blood, it's gonna actually carry on. And Jesus said, I'm not gonna drink of that mill again until I see them in the new heavens and the new earth, basically. And what a day it'll be to celebrate for all of eternity that Jesus has died to save us and raised to give us new life with God. All right, let's pray. Then we're gonna come forward. You start on this side, come down and we'll give you the elements and then you can go back to your seat and take them whenever you're ready. Then we'll do this, this row, this row, and then the final row. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your shed blood and your broken body. Lord, thank you that you're a God of grace and mercy. We're thankful that you've opened our eyes and show us, shown us our need and led us to repentance. We pray you do it again and again that we'd see the hopeful reality of your love for us, that you've conquered death, that ultimately, really, truly, you've defeated every enemy and that, Lord, even now we're seated with you in the heavenlies. And we pray that you'd come, Lord Jesus, come soon and make all things right and all things new. In Christ's name, amen. All right, you can stand. Stay in the same with us whenever you're ready.
Sing with us. Let's sing that first verse again. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's hands. And sinners plunge beneath that flood. Lose
beneath. I saw that stream, thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. And shall be till I die. And shall be till I die. Redeeming love has been my theme. And shall be till I die. Amen. What an amazing God we serve. That would see us in our wreckage, in our ruin. That would see this broken world full of corruption. And he would send his son to set everything right. We're in exile right now. But God is coming back to set all things right, to make all things new, as only He can. Only He can take our tragedy and turn it into triumph. Only He can conquer over sin and death and raise us up with Him and create peace. Only He holds the world together, the pillars of the earth, like we talked about in Psalm 75. Our God is an amazing God. He turns graves into gardens. He turns bones into armies. And I search the world it couldn't fill me Man's empty praise A promise of faith I'm never enough Then you came along Put me back together Now every desire Is now satisfied Here in your love Oh, there's nothing better than you. Oh, there's nothing better than you. Oh, there's nothing. Nothing is better than you. I'm not afraid. Show you my weakness, my failures and flaws. Lord, you've seen them all, and you still call me friend. He's God of the mountain, He's the God of the valley. There's not a place your mercy can grace. Won't find me again. Oh, there's nothing. Oh, there's nothing 
benediction as usual. Uh, we'll read that in just a second, but after we have the final benediction, we'll have the, the final throwing away of cups into the trash can. So if you can just grab those little plastic guys, toss them in that plastic bag, and then the plastics will be unified and they'll be happy. And then eventually we'll take them to a sweet and fulfilling death. So, okay, let's, let's read the benediction together as we close out. From 1 Timothy 1.17, praise to God. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You take that truth and let's proclaim that with our lives as we live this week. You are loved. You are sent out. Love the world. Honor God.